The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. We're reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Well, let's pray before we get into God's word this morning. Father God, we have so much to thank you for. Uh, Even the fact that we're here this morning, Lord, you give us so many good gifts, and um, Lord, we're aware of uh, your provision in our lives, your protection in our lives, your guidance in our lives. We thank you for the joy that comes from Christ. Thank you that we're woven into a family. Thank you that all things are working together for the the good of those who are called, and um, Lord, we, we pray that um, we would see your purposes more clearly this morning. Lord, I want to pray for those who aren't in our midst um, for whatever reason. I ask that you would heal them from sicknesses that are debilitating. I pray that you would keep their souls from being discouraged. I pray that you would protect them from the schemes of the evil one who would cause the cares of this world to overwhelm them. Lord, we are mindful this morning that the evil one does have schemes in our lives, but we're not afraid because we have a champion. And that's what we want to meditate on this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open these words to us. We ask that we would see, uh, we would see the battle clearly and that we would be further equipped to stand firm in the day of darkness and to grow in holiness, and to be zealous for your glory. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. In a little town called Bethlehem, a boy named David was once born, and he was raised in relative simplicity. He worked with his hands, and in those early years, his love for and his knowledge of the God of his fathers just grew and grew. Well, one day, David encountered a prophet of God, 
And Samuel recognized David as the one who was chosen to be king over Israel. So he anointed him with oil to mark this divine calling and equipping. Shortly after that, David's unique qualification for king would be tested as he came across Israel's single most feared enemy, an over nine-foot-tall Philistine warrior whose mouth was full of curses on the God of Israel. Now, this wasn't technically David's fight, but he willingly inserted himself. And he took up the most unlikely of weapons. And, well, you know the rest of the story. The stone brought Goliath down, and then David took the giant's own sword and cut off his head. Well, 1,000 years later, in that same town of Bethlehem, the son of David was born. And he was raised in simplicity, working with his hands. And in those early years, his love for and knowledge of God, his father, grew and grew. And one day, Jesus approached a prophet. And John recognized Jesus as the chosen one, the king over all nations. And God himself confirmed this by anointing Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And soon after that... Jesus' unique qualification for king would be tested as he came across humanity's single greatest enemy, that serpent-like spirit of old whose mouth was full of curses on the God of Israel. It wasn't technically Jesus' fight, but he inserted himself willingly, and he took up the most unlikely of weapons, the very words of God that Satan had ignored and reviled. And in today's passage, Jesus uses divine words to show that Satan had no power over him. And in the next three years, Jesus would use divine words to show that Satan need not have any power over us. And then at the right moment, Jesus took Satan's own weapon, death, and struck him a fatal blow from which even now he's slowly bleeding out. But it all started here in chapter 4. Just like for David, this first encounter with the enemy was divinely planned to showcase Jesus' identity and to build his confidence for the royal task that awaited him. But none of this will matter if we don't take seriously that enemy who is also our enemy. What do you think of when you hear the name Satan or the devil? Is it like a cartoonish figure who's making mischief and putting adolescent thoughts into our heads? Is it a grotesque demon with bloodlust that you've seen in some horror movie? See, Satan loves to make us think that if he exists, well, then he's probably just somewhat juvenile and self-serving, maybe like Loki in the Marvel Universe. Or on the other hand, that his work comes with such dark terror that we, we really shouldn't suspect his activity unless we're being tempted to murder or burn buildings or something. But according to the Bible, Satan is a master of subtlety, and he would gladly concede battles in order to win the war for you. And when his forces are active, you usually won't sense some great darkness. Rather, you'll see what seems to be an angel of light. His purposes aren't just to cause chaos, but to destroy the works of God. And since you are created in the image of God, he utterly hates you. And he wants to destroy your joy now and forever. The good news of this passage is that you have a champion. Jesus is our champion over temptation. 
And you can trust Jesus to defend you against the schemes of Satan because Jesus withstood the worst temptation there is. And afterward, he commanded Satan, be gone, and he can do just the same through you. Verse 1 starts by telling us, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So notice that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into this very encounter. It was planned for Jesus to be tempted. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that God could, if he wanted, keep you away from all temptation? We know this is true because in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. See, he likes it when we show our understanding through that prayer that sin is our greatest danger and we express dependence on him to preserve us from it. But why would God only keep us from temptation when we ask him for it? Why wouldn't he just not lead us into temptation always? Jesus' temptation helps us to see that God can have purposes in allowing us to be tempted. When Satan designs to tempt us, if God allows it, then that means God means for the struggle to test us, to prove us, to grow us. Scripture is clear that God himself tempts no one, but he never promises to guard us from all chances to be lured and deceived by Satan, and that's an important distinction. Well, notice that this temptation comes right after the emotional high of Jesus' baptism. Remember chapter 3, the heavens were opened and Jesus' identity as the beloved son was confirmed with the very voice of God. And then now the, the same spirit who anointed Jesus as king is directly leading him into this dangerous encounter. Have you ever noticed in your own life that it's often after the joyous peaks and the bright triumphs of life that you suddenly find yourself in quite a dangerous place. You thought you were learning and maturing so much, and then suddenly you feel more vulnerable than ever. Well, this movement from the gift of the Spirit in chapter 3 to trial in chapter 4 is purposeful. Listen to another pastor's explanation. He says, Every gift brings temptation. The gift of beauty tempts to vanity the gift of strength tempts to domination. The gift of intellect tempts to manipulation. The gift of wealth tempts to indulgence. The gift of humor tempts to mockery. Every gift brings temptation. The gift equips the recipient to serve others, but also tempts him to please himself. So this is the progression. Gifting, then temptation, then ministry. The gift gives us strength. The temptation probes its direction. I think when we look back on our Christian lives, we can see that that's very much true for us as well. So when you face temptation, the question is in what direction you intend to go with what you've been given. Will this testing prove your selfishness, your desire just to preserve yourself, or will it equip you and prepare you for service and ministry? It was exactly the same with Jesus now notice the premise of, of Satan's temptations. If you are the son of God, so that identity which was celebrated in chapter 3, it now becomes kind of a question. Like what kind of son of God will Jesus prove to be? Will he use that unique identity to serve himself or to serve the purposes of God the Father? And the question is the same for us. God wants us to walk further into our mission in this world in part by proving in the face of temptation 
that we choose to use what we've been given for his purposes alone. That's what he wants us to declare with our lives. And when we succeed, then that builds greater confidence in how we live out our faith, and it strengthens all the people of God around us who see the reality of the Holy Spirit in us. This leading of Jesus into the wilderness for tempting by the devil, it was, when you see it through this lens, it was God's kindness to Jesus to prepare him, to give him confidence. And if we belong to Christ, then seasons of testing are God's kindness to us as well. Now, before we look at Jesus' first temptation, notice verse 2. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The Jewish people regularly practiced fasting. And it wasn't, you know, for us it's trendy to fast for, to lose weight or whatever. But no, for them it was to spend more time in prayer and to develop greater spiritual receptivity. So fasting is a way to declare and remind oneself, you know, I need God more than I need anything. Even food. And we're going to talk more about fasting when we get to chapter 6. But uh, in this weakened state of hunger, we read that the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So our premise is Jesus is our champion over temptation. And in this first temptation, we see that Jesus is your champion when you just want to feel good. The temptation isn't just food. Of course, it can be sinful to steal food or to overeat in a gluttonous way. But after 40 days of fasting, the main temptation here is to misuse what's in front of him to get what God hasn't given him for this time. That's what the temptation is. His body, his psyche, his whole mood just feels off because of the fasting and he's depleted. So Satan appeals to that longing just to feel good. And why couldn't he just reach out and feel better? Like, what harm would it do to anyone else? After all, in in Exodus 17, God had Moses bring water out of a rock for the people. So how different would it be to make bread out of a rock? Surely God wouldn't mean for his chosen one to feel like this when he could so easily resolve his own need. Have you ever thought that? Surely God wouldn't intend for me to feel this way. Why not? He had Jesus suffer through that same need to just feel better. Well, you might say food is one thing, but but what about sexual temptations? What about substance temptations? Scripture is clear that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness because he, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, but without sin. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that Jesus experienced the same exact circumstances as each of us. He did live on this earth within a certain culture and a certain time, right? But every category of the way we will be tempted, he was tempted in that way as well. So it wasn't pornography on a computer, but he withstood sexual temptation. Maybe he didn't have access to illicit drugs, but he certainly could have drunk excessive alcohol with the goal of just forgetting and feeling numb. He didn't have Netflix, but he could have binged on trivialities in some other way. So temptations to just feel better have always existed. And for Jesus, after 40 days of fasting, trust me, Satan picked the right temptation because bread would have been way more alluring than any other pleasure at this point. But this temptation is the same whatever kind of hunger is nagging at you 
physical hunger? Is it relational hunger? Is it emotional hunger? Whenever a lack of anything is convincing you that you must do whatever it takes to feel differently in this moment, then this first temptation of Jesus is meant for you to remember. Now let's pause here and think just for a moment about addiction. It used to be in the past that people suffering from addiction were very stigmatized, dehumanized, and that's wrong. And partially in response to that cultural cruelty, a lot has been said in the last 50 years about addiction as a disease. To some degree, people reach a point where there are seemingly involuntary physical impulses. That's true. Here's what we have to keep in mind, though. Using substances to create an altered state of mind is sin, even if it feels involuntary when it's happening. That's the nature of the curse on this world. But Jesus can save us even from this state, save us not only from the guilt of sin, but also from the continuing power of sin in our lives. And the same is true for so-called sex addiction, or homosexuality, or the temptation to act on a feeling of gender dysphoria. Some people may say, well, I was born with a predisposition to this or that. Maybe. People are born with all sorts of predispositions to live in ways that are in rebellion to God's good order. That's exactly why we believe in the doctrine of original sin. We don't become sinners when we're 5 or 10 or 20. We are born in sin And this is why we need Christ more desperately than we even realize. And he is able to deliver us from all tendencies to satisfy the way we feel in ways that ultimately will not lead to joy or life. In Jesus' own temptation, maybe bread seems like such an innocent thing. During his ministry, Jesus would miraculously make bread for 5,000 people, for 4,000 people another time. So what makes it right then but wrong now? And the answer is in Jesus' answer. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is a part of Moses' farewell speech. Moses was uh, reminding the people of all that they had experienced in the wilderness, and he's um, talking about the, the meaning of it all. He's interpreting it for them. So listen to the larger context. This is starting in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the meaning is that, yes, food is necessary for life, but on its own, it's not enough. If you don't take in the words of God, whatever physical life you enjoy is just a fleeting mirage. So Israel's hunger was meant to teach them that the hearing and obeying of God's word is the most important thing in life. And if we get that right, then God can easily provide bread in the wilderness when we trust in his provision instead of our own. Jesus says no to bread of his own making because he understands that this training 
is the Father's design for him in this time too. You may have noticed that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, just like ancient Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, being tested and formed by God. So there's an intentional parallel. Just like we've seen earlier in Matthew, Jesus is reliving and he's completing these stories of Moses, of David. He's fulfilling the history of Israel. So in Exodus, God called the nation of Israel his son, And his son would fail when tempted in the wilderness. But now the true son has come, and he will succeed where Israel did not. So understanding this parallel explains why Jesus answers Satan all three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, where Moses is summarizing the wilderness wanderings. So Jesus was probably meditating on Deuteronomy throughout those 40 days so that he could prove faithful where Israel proved faithless. How will you withstand temptation in the day of trial? Jesus' reliance here on the very words of Scripture proves the point. You can't live just on food alone. You need God's words if you're going to be able to stand firm amid darkness. So this is why we read God's word regularly. This is why we work to understand it. This is why we memorize God's words or keep them in front of us in different ways. This is why we incorporate God's words into our prayers because Satan is smarter than us. And if we rely just on our own words and ideas, he's sure to win the day. He will flatter you with all your strengths, just like he acknowledged Jesus' power as a son of God, he'll make the danger look so small, he'll make the wrong of it seem so meaningless and inconsequential, and he'll appear to be giving you far more than he's taking. But it's not true. Only God's very words will keep you oriented. And so Jesus quotes God's word to say, no, I won't place physical needs over the needs of my soul. I won't satisfy my cravings in an illegitimate way. I won't consume a good thing in a wrong way just to make myself feel better. Jesus is our champion when we're tempted to do whatever it takes just to feel better in the moment. Now after this setback, Satan loses no time in responding. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now here we see that Jesus is caught up in some sort of vision or alternate reality or maybe some sort of freaky teleportation. Uh, Someone without food for 40 days could not travel quickly to Jerusalem. Plus, if you think about the third temptation where there's this mountain where he sees all the kingdoms of the world, like that doesn't exist. So clearly Satan is messing with Jesus in some very supernatural ways. But it doesn't make the temptation any less real. If anything, it it makes it more powerful. And the deceiver intensifies his arguments too. He says, oh, okay, Jesus, you want to identify with God's people. Okay, Jesus, you want to meditate on scripture. Well, how about this one, Psalm 91? It says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, the devil says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Do what it says. Well, I think we do the Gospels a disservice if we ever think that Jesus had an easy time of things on this earth. You know, maybe we slip into that thinking like, well, he was God. Yeah, there was that crucifixion thing, that was pretty rough, but he was God. No, what we see from the scriptures is that from his birth through his crucifixion, Jesus surely lived out the most difficult human identity ever. 
And here Satan is putting his finger on Jesus' conception of himself in relation to God and in relation to others. Maybe he's trying to plague Jesus with doubts about God's care for him. Maybe he's tempting him to arrogantly get people's attention by doing something spectacular. Because after he safely floats down from the pinnacle of the temple to the rocky Kidron Valley, I mean, hundreds of people would see that. So then they would know. They would know. And he would know with even more certainty that he is the Messiah. No more uncertainty. How wrong could this be? I mean, God had already given a special sign with the dove, so maybe now he would do something more public that would just just help Jesus and everyone else to know the truth of God's special care for him. If you are the son of God, this temptation gets after humanity's desire for certainty, to take away the ambiguity, to know and be known. But Jesus sees through the temptation. Psalm 91 is speaking of how God will not let the one who trusts in him stumble. It doesn't talk about leaping off of a precipice. And it's fine, Satan can quote scripture too, but Jesus shows it's not convincing. He wouldn't allow an interpretation of one part of scripture to stand if it contradicted another part of scripture. And neither should we. And that's why we have to keep growing in our knowledge of Scripture. We can't just know a few verses that could easily be misused if taken out of context from the rest of the Bible. Jesus knows the whole Bible. He's checking Satan, not only for accuracy, but for context. And Jesus answers from Deuteronomy 6, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now that verse goes on to say, as you tested him at Massa. If you remember in Exodus 17, Massa was where Moses struck the rock and water came out just after the people had tested God by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, we we find it humorous, but it's, we do the same thing, right? Like he had just delivered them through the Red Sea. He had promised to lead them and provide for them and They don't have water for a little bit and they freak out and they blame him and they test him. They needed something more than his promise. They needed proof now on their terms. Do we ever try to prove out God's truth in ways that actually show a lack of reliance upon him? Do you ever demand proof of the Father's care like Jesus was tempted to. Like, God, if you're really with me in this or that, then do such and such to reassure me. We're so desperate to know or be known that that we're not content to just rest in the certainty of his word and trust in his timing. We seek to take the plan out of God's hands and move it forward in a way that will relieve our concerns. Jesus says with his response, I trust God the Father's provision for me. I trust his timing to reveal my identity to those who will believe. I'm secure in his care for me. I don't need demonstrations on my terms. So may we likewise learn to stop grasping for reassurances or trying to manipulate God to go by our timetable. So Jesus hasn't fallen for the temptation to grasp for pleasure. He also hasn't fallen for grasping after knowledge and control. So what's left? Not to grasp for something, but to avoid something. Suffering. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, we know that the kingdoms of the world and their glory were always meant to belong to Jesus. And we see that even with the visit of the wise men. So what is this temptation really about? It's, it's offering Jesus something that he's due to get anyway. Yes, but it's fast-forwarding the timetable in a way that bypasses the moment of coronation that God the Father has planned, which is the cross and the resurrection. So again, with, with verse 8, we instantly know this is not your normal mountain. You wouldn't get this sort of view even from Everest. What's interesting, though, is a parallel with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and, and, but Satan is essentially substituting himself in the place of God the Father. So Psalm 2, verses 6 and 8, says, As for me, I have set my king, the Christ, on Zion, my holy hill. And then God says to that king, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Well, Satan is acting that out. He's offering Christ to establish him on this mountain and saying, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Right now, free of charge. Were the nations even Satan's to give? No and yes. When Adam and Eve sinned, there is a sense in which they handed over the deed of this earth to Satan, and that's why Scripture calls him the ruler of this world. But he's a usurper. And so Jesus, the true man, the second Adam, came not to receive the world back from Satan by negotiation and concession, but to win it back through defeating him and disarming him. And what kind of kingdoms would Jesus even receive if he accepted them here? Satan showed him all the kingdoms in their splendor, but did he show him the brokenness and the decay because of sin? Jesus didn't come just to reign, but to cleanse from sin. So receiving his inheritance of the world in this way, refusing to die for the sins of the world, that is, act, that is actually an act of false worship that would ultimately have given the victory to Satan instead of God. And I think this is perhaps the most tempting temptation for Jesus. I say that because it comes back twice later in Matthew. So chapter 16, Jesus is predicting his own suffering and death, and Peter says, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus strongly responds, get behind me, Satan. He sees the same temptation in play. And then, even when Jesus is on the cross, even then the temptation continues. It's hidden in the mocking of the people. They sounded a lot like Satan right here. They said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. You know, this is probably the most tempting temptation for us too. And I think one big implication of it, um, just culturally, is that we need to be content to wait for God to establish his kingdom. We don't rashly try to shortcut our way to that end. You know, church history is littered with times when Christians have confused their seizing of power with God establishing his kingdom. And I think even in our own political moment, Christians desperately seek influence, often with attitudes and tactics that reject actual reliance on the timing and, and ways of God. 
Because we're terrified of finding ourselves in a culture where Christians may be compromised. And so we're tempted to fight it by any means possible. But what if our being compromised and trusting God in the way of the cross is actually the path that will bring renewal and awakening to this land? On a more personal level, though, I think we all have a hard time submitting to a path of suffering in any sphere of life, right? Like how many people have grown tired of financial stress and so they set out on a path that delivers them from that burden while also compromising their devotion to Christ? How many people have grown tired of relational suffering and so they've broken covenant with their spouse to reach for that better relationship that they feel entitled to? How many people rage against sickness and death at all costs Instead of trusting God to shepherd them, come what may. I'm so thankful for Jerry Judge's recent example of humility in the face of cancer. Not perfectly, I'm sure. It's, it's scary to suffer. But for those who are walking with her through that, there's this general sense of peace and settledness even as she did her part by receiving treatment. And there wasn't this flailing about for control. And beautifully, it's been God's pleasure recently to give her relief. So Jesus shows us that it is good to wait on God and to trust in God for that lasting health and wholeness and the inheritance that he's promised to us. You know, Satan wants to tempt us to grasp for it all now, to to hold on to it with white knuckles, bowing down to anything that can promise us health and longer life. But whatever joy and power Satan offers through turning our backs on God, that's going to vanish with death. God's path to our sure inheritance does include appointed suffering and death. But Christ is our leader who went before us even in that. Now even though this third may be the most tempting temptation, Jesus rejects it in the plainest manner. And he does it with authority. He says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I want to encourage you to memorize verse 10. Get used to reciting it. Whenever you're tempted to avoid suffering by bowing to something other than God, say, be gone, Satan. I will worship the Lord my God and serve him only. Because King Jesus conquered temptation in this way, it means that anyone found in him by faith can resist the devil. Remember that hourglass analogy that I brought up last, was it last week? So imagine an hourglass, right? The people of God up here, all the sand, and it it filters down and leads to Jesus, the one true man who succeeded in the wilderness where Israel failed. And then from him, the people of God now fan out. And what's true of our leader is true for us in him. He is your champion over temptation when you just want to feel good when you just want certainty, or when you desperately want to take the easy way out. He has been through the hardest way there is. He goes before you in whatever challenge awaits. And because our covenant leader has triumphed, so we will come, we who come under him and after him, we will learn how to triumph in his power. So let me make some hopefully helpful observations just about these temptations when we look at them as a group. So first of all, notice that these temptations that were offered to Jesus, they're all good things, right? 
It's good to have food when you're desperately hungry. It's good to have proven assurance of God's favor. It's good to have authority over a sphere of influence. I mean, we were all put here to exercise some sort of dominion over something, to enjoy a vocation, an inheritance of sorts. But the enemy of God wants to convince us to take those good things in the wrong way. Like making physical and emotional comfort ultimate. Like putting God to the test. Like sidestepping suffering that he would lead us through. And that wrong way, just as it did for Adam and Eve, always involves not trusting what God has said. Second, those, those good things all represent good things that God would give Jesus anyway. You notice that, right? How this passage ends, the, the angels come and they're ministering to him. They're, they're satisfying his hunger. They're comforting him with assurance of God's presence. First and second temptations, right there. He gets them just by being patient, trusting God a little bit longer. Will you trust God enough to forego the right thing in the wrong way and wait for him to give you the right thing in the right way? Sometimes it's just right around the corner. But sometimes we will wait the wait will be long, and the path will be arduous. I mean, God didn't give Jesus the kingdoms of the world right after this temptation was over. No, but in faith, Jesus commits himself again to the path of the cross. Next, note the devil's tactics. The devil keeps appealing to Jesus' divine status. Hey, you're the son of God. You're the son of God. Jesus responds by appealing to his being a mere servant of the Father. As Philippians says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is really instructive for us because you'd better believe that when temptation comes your way, it'll be appealing to your pride. It'll play on how you are special. You are unique. You are blessed. Or maybe no one has suffered like you have. You are unique. And, and so it's okay for you, at least this once. Satan puffs us up before he cuts us down. And so a key to surviving temptation is to think and to speak and to decide with the mindset of a servant of God. Humble yourself on the front end and then you won't be humbled by your failure and misery on the back end. And finally, let's zoom out and just appreciate what Jesus did in this, this temptation sequence. He goes out into a place of barrenness. And through fasting, he enters this state of relative emptiness. And that is where he puts on display Satan's powerlessness against the word of God and against this new kind of man, the second Adam. And if you are in Christ, then you are that new kind of human. You are being conformed more and more each day by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. And through trusting in God and relying on his word, you can, you must, you will resist temptation. Even when you're in the barren places. Even when you feel in a state of emptiness. And when, less and less all the time, you fail, look at him again. And cling to your leader. Jesus resisted Satan in the barren place. He resisted Satan in the urban and sacred place. He resisted Satan even from the mountain of power with all the glory and wonder and pleasures of this world are just dangling in front of him, free for the taking, seemingly. Jesus, in all of these contexts, 
is our champion over temptation. So when temptation comes, get your eyes off of your felt need. Get your eyes off of your own situation and look at Jesus. And as you trust him, the forces of darkness will have to flee. Lord, uh, we thank you so much that we have a champion like this. We thank you that Jesus isn't just like some, some general who's removed from anything we've ever experienced. No, he is with us. He is before us in the trenches. He has suffered worse than we have. He has experienced every sort of temptation. And we praise you for that, God. The perfection of your plan, the goodness of your provision for us. And now we pray for greater faith to make use of it. Lord, I don't know where the struggle is for each person in this room, but you do. You know what, where the battle is, where Satan has been getting the upper hand, where our lives have not been consistent with our confession. I pray that you would minister to each of us in that arena today, that you would bring these words to bear on that struggle and that you would give us the victory for our joy and for your glory. Amen.